Well, t- today is a special day for me because it is my last Sunday for a few months. Uh, if you're new to our church, I am uh, taking a sabbatical, uh, which uh, is not a vacation, all right? Uh, it, let me be clear about that. Uh, it is a time of rest and renewal of my heart and my soul and my family to, uh, to discover again my own relationship with Jesus. And, uh, and so Brienne and I and her family are, um, are taking three months months off. So you won't see me up here on this stage until September. Some of you, that's uh, probably a good thing, right? Uh, and, uh, but uh, today is our last Sunday, and at the end, our council's going to come up and pray over uh, Brianne and I. And um, as we begin to go in sabbatical, and as I began to think about this being my last Sunday for several months, uh, I thought about what I wanted to teach about. And uh, I've been here at our church for eight years, a little over eight years. On March 17th, 2021. I celebrated eight years uh, with you, and uh, God has taught me a lot in the last eight years. I've learned uh, many things over the course of uh, being with you and preaching and, and leading a team and seeing our church grow, and it's been an incredible journey, and I want to talk to you about the things and the lessons that I've learned over the last eight years. I've learned probably hundreds of things, but I've actually reduced them into eight things, and so I've got eight life lessons that I have learned personally over the last eight years. And I pray that these, and I believe that these things aren't just for me, they're also for you as well. Because I, I believe they're, they're truths about God and his word and what he does in his church. And so some of you are part of this journey and this story of the last eight years. And, uh, and you're, you're, you're just part of that. And, uh, and so a, a little bit of this is kind of uh, be a little narrative, our journey as, uh, as a church in the last eight years, and so uh, if you're relatively new to our church, it kind of catch you up to speed with where we're at. So eight uh, life lessons I've learned in eight years, and each one is kind of, uh, I, I, I've, I've captured it as like a law or a principle, uh, an effect, and so uh, I have uh, a truth for you, I have a verse for you in each one, so uh, are you ready? All right. Online, are you ready? All right. Type in the chat and say, I'm ready. The first one is this. It is the law, what I'm calling the law of the harvest, the law of the harvest. And this one is about, is about money. Uh, and uh, uh, some of you have heard this story, but um, before I came to Newburgh, uh, before I even knew about Newburgh, uh, well, I knew about Newburgh. It was a place you drive through on your way to Seaside, or, or no, Pacific City. I, I should get my geography right, where you used to get stuck in for about 20 minutes. Uh, and, uh, and before I came, before we knew about Newburgh, before we, we even came here, I, I made a promise to God. Through my history and experience as a church, I've, I, I've seen churches uh, in, in nonprofits uh, misuse and mishandle money. And, and so I made a promise to God, uh, and my promise to God was this, that, uh, that I would never preach about money, uh, about giving, tithing, and generosity, which the Bible has a lot to say about it. In fact, uh, some of you know this, that Jesus talked more about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. All right, so uh, because there is a tie in our hearts to money. But, but I made this promise to God that I, would, that I wouldn't talk about giving when the finances in the church were ever in a bad spot. All right, I made that promise to God because, because too many uh, churches and nonprofits, I've noticed, do, 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 
do, do not always uh, talk about the vision. They talk about the need. Uh, and people give to vision. They don't always give to need. And so, uh, so I made that commitment to, to God. And then the Lord called Brienne and I, and we got appointed here uh, at this church in 2013. And, uh, and the very first uh, Sunday uh, that I preached uh, was our lowest offering that we've had in our church for like the previous five years, right? It was, talk about a vote of confidence for your new pastor. And, uh, and so, uh, and so we, we, you know, we, we took all this in and, and, and this is what happened over the, the first six months of me being here. And nobody knew about it except the leadership in our church council and a few people on staff is that in the first month, uh, we were at a shortfall of $18,000. And over the first six months, it was an average of $12,000 a month, uh, right? We had $90,000 in the bank. Tyler, you were there at some of those council meetings. Uh, we had $90,000 in the bank. It doesn't take a genius to realize how many months you have left before something drastic has to happen. And so what did I do? I remember my promise to God, uh, and I prayed. I got on my knees, and I, and I prayed. And, uh, and during this season, uh, one of our favorite uh, nonprofits that we support, Home PDX, Brother Bruce, Pastor Bruce Arnold, came to me and he and he talked about. He just took over Home PDX and he talked about this uh, this burden uh, that he had on Home PDX, an eight thousand uh, dollar expense that he needed covered in order for him to do ministry. He ministers to people living on the streets in downtown Portland. I think he's still there, living uh, in a church there, sleeping uh, in a church basement there and uh, but he's an amazing man of God and he and he came and he and he said there's this eight thousand uh, dollar shortfall that we have and we talked about it at our church council and and uh, we we said this somebody said this what do we do uh, when uh, someone asks us to give and we don't have enough money in the bank what do we do we give all right we give and so we made a decision that night to give in $8,000 to uh, Home PDX. And so the next Sunday I got in front of you and uh, I asked you to make a commitment with me. I kind of waved a check, which I've never done in my life. Uh, but uh, I asked people to match it. And uh, that Sunday we raised exactly $8,000 to give to Home PDX. And I want to tell you, that was two and a half times the amount of my very first Sunday. All right? So that tells you something. So $8,000 we gave to uh, Home PDX. And, and everything practically that I've learned about ministry tells you not to do what we did on that Sunday. But as I look back at our church, I realize that there is a turning point in the financial picture of our church. And that turning point happened when we decided to give when we didn't really have the resources to give. And this is what I've learned. That true wealth is not determined by how much we have, but how much we give away. True wealth is not determined by how much you have in your bank account. It's determined by how uh, much that you can give away. Wealth is determined by your generosity. Now, now listen, I, I, I added it up. In the last eight years, we've been able to give away $1.6 million. That is four times our first year's budget when I came eight years ago. Come on, somebody. Can we celebrate that? God 
was testing me personally in my commitment to him. He was testing me. He was testing you as a church. He was testing us and, and we survived the test because we gave not out of what we have. We gave out of faith and we gave out of what we did not have. I love what 2 Corinthians says. It says this, remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your own heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. God loves a person who gives cheerfully. That is the law of the harvest. I learned that in my very first year. True wealth is determined by how much you give away, not how much you have. Here is uh, the second one, is the virtue of loyalty. The virtue of loyalty. One of the most difficult things in a church uh, as a pastor is navigating relationships in your first couple years. Because there are some people who want to get to know you, and you don't always know why they want to get to know you. And sometimes, soon you find out that the reason they want to get to know you and have you over for dinner is to complain about things that they don't like in the church. All right? And to ask me what the vision of the church is and to ask me all these questions and to complain about something that they didn't like. Uh, and if you really want to get on my bad side, you complain about the predecessor, the previous pastor, all right? And, and people were attempting to do this. They were attempting to influence me in the direction that they wanted the church to go. And they'd ask, Aaron, what's your vision? And I would say, I don't know my vision. I got to pray and I got to get to know people and understand the community community before God gives me a vision. God has a vision. He just hasn't revealed it to us yet. And, and what happened is this, is when I didn't meet the expectation, people slowly trickled out. People trickled out when, when, when I didn't meet their expect, expectation. And it's been said that a pastor's job is this, that pastoring is disappointing people at a rate that is tolerable, all right, <laughs> that you can tolerate. And so I, I remember my very first sermon, I, I remember I, I made you a promise, and my promise was I will disappoint you, all right? I, and it's one thing that I guarantee that I can hold to my promises, that I will, uh, I, I will, uh, I will disappoint you. And after a few years, uh, I actually began to learn who the true influencers were. They were not the people who were most vocal. They were the people who were most prayerful. They were the saints and the men and women of God who did not clamor for my attention or want to influence me in their way, but they prayed for me. And I even remember times coming up after a sermon that somebody would come and said, Pastor, I've been praying for you to preach on something like that. Listen, if you tell me to preach on something, I'm not going to do it. But if you pray for me, I just might do it. Because God's voice is louder than your voice. One of my mentors who's going to be with you for a couple weeks in the summer, Pastor Ron Swore, he, he tells his church, he says, pray for me just as much as you talk about me. <laughs> This is what I've learned. The virtue of loyalty, that you're only as strong as the people you surround yourself with. You're only as strong as the people you surround yourself with. And who you surround yourself with, your circle, that inner circle, the people that you're with, will determine, in part, your future. 
in, in your success in the future. And I look around at our church today and I look at our dream team and I look at our staff and I look at our people and I think I am surrounded by the most amazing group of people and those who've weathered all eight years with me, all right? There's about 30 of you left. Like, I just am so, I know, I'm not, I'm, that's not even joking, all right? I am just so thankful for you. And I'm just so, just so honored to be in a church uh, with saints like you. And I think that with the strength of the people that we have, we can accomplish whatever God wants for us. I love how Ecclesiastes talks about friendship. Uh, Solomon says this, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. There is something about the strength of friendship when we are together. We are better together than we are alone. I love what Proverbs 17 says. Solomon has lots of things to say about friendship. He says, a friend is always loyal and a brother is born to help in time of need. That is the virtue of loyalty. Here's the, the third one. The third one is the joy through suffering paradox. The joy through suffering paradox. It's a paradox because uh, for, uh, for most of us, uh, for the way the world thinks, um, that, that you cannot find joy through suffering, that you find joy through happiness and finding the things in your life that make you happy or give you joy. But, but the gospel is counterintuitive to what we think, and it's an upside-down gospel. And what the gospel talks about is that there is a joy through suffering. Even, even Jesus talked about that. Hebrews says that Jesus uh, endured the cross uh, and saw it as joy for what was on the other side. He looked at it as joy. And uh, the reality is a lot of us uh, want to experience uh, the mountaintop. We want mountaintop experiences. And I want to tell you that, that, that I love mountaintop experiences. Mountaintop experiences with God. It, some of you know what I'm talking about. It's those, it's those moments where you feel filled up with his presence and just consumed with, with who he is, where the spirit falls on you, your emotions are touched, your mind is touched, and you are just filled with him. It's, it's happened in my life sporadically, uh, intermittently throughout my life. There, there is no pattern that I can find to the mountaintop experiences. And this is what I've learned, that oftentimes if I want a mountaintop experience, I don't get one because I try to pressure God into a box to come into the way that I want him to move. But he often moves when I least expect him to move. And so there's these mountaintop experiences throughout my life. And I, I look at these experiences and I, and I love these experiences, but, but, but in between the peaks and the mountaintop experiences, I can probably count them on two hands, that there are lots of valleys between them. There are lots of valleys, and every mountaintop experience has a valley between it. You see, a lot of people want to see the view from Mount Everest, but not very many people are willing to walk through the valley and climb the mountain to get it. And, and, and I've, I've understood this and realized this, that most of life is spent 
in the valley. I think, I, I, I think a couple things shape me in this way. I, I talk a lot about the valleys in, in my ministry, about, about pain, because a couple reasons. Number one, I see people go through pain and walk through valleys, and the valley is where we spend most of life. But number two, God has shaped me most in the valley. My life has been transformed most in the, the valleys uh, of my life. And so uh, here, here is the truth I want you to know. To experience the mountaintop, you must walk through the valley. To experience the mountaintop, you must walk through the valley. I'll be a little vulnerable with you today. One of my valleys in ministry is the valley of discouragement. The valley of discouragement. It is my thorn in the side. In the, it is the thorn in the flesh. And discouragement for me uh, comes primarily through criticism. And I realize this. I came into ministry thinking, I'm not a people pleaser, right? I just want to please God. And then I got into ministry and I realized, no, I want everybody to like me, right? I want people to like how I speak. I want people to like how I lead. I want people, I want people to like me. I want them to like the church. When people don't like me and like my church and like God's church, it's not my church, God's church, and it doesn't like, and the people don't like it, then I take a personal offense to it. And, and I, this isn't, unique to me. This is unique to anybody who works in a field, in an area, works on a project, work, does, a, does some piece of art, and, and if somebody critiques it, it hits you at a spot because you are tied with it. And people will tell you, well, you shouldn't be so personal. And I think, well, well, ministry is so personal. Like, it's the most personal thing in my life. Like, but besides my wife and family, this is probably why I need sabbatical, all right? Because I, I need to have other priorities. I, I do have other priorities. You get what I'm saying. You understand what I'm saying. And, 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 but let me just give you a couple thoughts on this. A couple thoughts. Th there's a difference between criticism and feedback. Feedback is there to make you better. And feedback comes from people who love you more than their experience of you. And so they, they want to make you better. Criticism, uh, feedback is focused on the other person. Criticism is actually self-focused because it, th the criticism comes from the critic to make them feel better about what they think. And so it's about them getting things off their chest and laying their burdens on you. Some of you have been in leadership and you know that's when, when people critique. They put their burdens on you. They feel better and you feel worse. All right? You know what, I, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and so that is part of the, the burden of, of ministry, the burden of leadership. But there's a difference between criticism and feedback. And, and feedback uh, I, I, I enjoy. Feedback I value. Uh, and I value feedback from those who love the church, love Jesus, and love me. And they have a voice worth hearing. The, the second thought is, is this, is that as a, as a person, as a creator, as a leader, whatever you do, you get to determine what you're criticized for. You ever think about that? I would be, I would rather be criticized for he changed too much than he never changed anything. I would rather be criticized for the music's too loud than it sounds dead in here. Because no one ever says it's too quiet. <laughs> you don't. You don't say, oh, it's too quiet in that church. You say, no, it's dead. All right? I, I would rather be criticized for being too bold than being vanilla and safe in ministry. I would rather be, be criticized for dreaming too big and failing than never dreaming 
at all. You get to determine, we get to determine what we are criticized for. I, I like how Paul puts this joy through suffering paradox. He says this, he says we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Do you know that the New Testament has a theology of suffering that we have very rarely in our stream of Christianity really tapped into? All right. This idea that we become more like Jesus through our suffering and through our valleys. It's actually the one of the ways that God shapes us to be more like him. Let me get to the fourth one. The fourth one is this. I'm calling this the compound effect. The compound effect. Uh, and the compound uh, effect is about success. Now, another vulnerable moment that I'm going to learn on sabbatical why I'm like this is that I am driven by success. And I am uh, ambitious and driven. And for the most part, people value that. But, but at its core, I think every ambition and, and, and every drivenness is, 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 is there because of a hurt or a pain or a brokenness. Uh, and, and I am driven by results and I am driven by success. And it's one of the things that uh, as I get to go on sabbatical, uh, I was telling uh, someone earlier, as you, as you take my responsibilities away from me and the things I get value away from me, I get to figure out who I really am. All right, I, I get to be Aaron instead of Pastor Aaron. And, and I get to uh, understand my identity in calling personally in, in Christ. And uh, I, I, I'm like this. I put a lot of pressure on myself to succeed. Anybody like that? Like, like, like no one can criticize me more than I criticize myself. Uh, and I put a lot of pressure on me. But I've learned this, that God's grace is bigger than my greatest mistake. And the church doesn't rise and fall on my ability. The church rises and falls on God's ability to work through me. It's the same in your business. It's the same in your family. It's the same in your career. It does not depend on your ability, but God's ability to work through you and speak through you. You know, there are no shortcuts to success, whatever that looks like, success. There are no shortcuts to the blessing of God. One thing I've learned, and, and I learned this preaching through the seven parables in Matthew. I did an entire year, I think it was 2015, uh, where I, it was a year of seven, all right? I, I was just stuck on the number seven, and I did, you know, seven seven series all about seven weeks long. That's just how I think. And just, I do weird things like that. All right. Uh, and, 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 but I was preaching about seven parables of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. And, and Jesus talks about faith. And, and I was raised in an environment. And I think a lot of people in church are raised in this environment that, that, that in order to succeed, that you've got to have great faith. In order to be a Christian, that you've got to have big faith. That, that, that Christianity is this leap of faith. You know what I mean? Uh, when I was a youth pastor, uh, I, I think I saw this when I was a kid. It was the, 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 the Indiana Jones scene where he, you know, throws the, the rocks on that. You know what I'm talking about? All right, I don't have to explain that. And he steps out and, you know, it's like the climax of the movie. And we kind of, we say faith is, is, is like that. It's this giant leap. The only problem is the Bible doesn't teach that. Wait, it doesn't? No, I've been in environments where, where people uh, were, were praying and someone doesn't get healed or something like that and someone says something like this. Well, it's because we don't have enough faith. 
If we just had more faith, that, 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 then, then God wouldn't move. The Bible just doesn't teach that. In fact, what, what Jesus said, Jesus said this. He said, because you have so little faith, he said, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. During this series, my family packed up 500 little bags of mustard seed to hand out. <laughs> to remind us that it's not about having big faith, but it's having small amounts of faith in the right thing. Did you know it's not the strength of your faith that saves you? Did you know that? It is the object of your faith. It is not the strength or quality of your faith. You can have great faith, but if it's in the wrong thing, that thing cannot save you. Why do I call this the compound effect? I call this the compound effect because it's like compound interest, that, 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 that compound interest accrues, whether it compounds daily or, or monthly or yearly, it's the idea that, 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 that if you put money in the bank, there's compound interest, it just, it keeps accruing and snowballing. And, and success uh, in, in, in whatever area of your life is like this compound effect. It is not one major decision in your life. We, we, we think that, right? Just think of what we do to high school seniors. Where are you going to go to college and do for the rest of your life? You're like, I'm 18, all right? It's like this one decision that will develop your trajectory. But in fact, uh, success and fruitfulness is a series of small decisions made every single day consistently for your entire life. And so, Great faith comes through small acts of faith every day. So this is what I've learned. You can write this down. That fruitfulness is a byproduct of faithfulness. We all want fruit. We want the fruits of the Spirit, right? But, but the fruits of the Spirit and the fruit that God gives us is a byproduct of faithfulness. The fruits of the Spirit are not gifts of God. Those are spiritual gifts. There's a difference between the spiritual gifts and the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are a result of faithfulness to Jesus. Luke 16 10 says this, the one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. When you are faithful with the small daily things, following Jesus in his narrow road that he laid out for us in the word of God, if you are faithful in those small things, God can trust you with the bigger things. Are you with me, church? Here is the fifth one. I'm halfway done. All right. The fifth one, I learned the law of regeneration. The law of regeneration. And this is about personal transformation. I counted up how many sermons I've done in the last eight years. I've done 336 sermons. I've preached them 840 times. All right. Sometimes we have two gatherings, sometimes we have three, but cumulatively I, I preach them 840 times. I, I, I study for each sermon about 12 to 15 hours a week, sometimes more, sometimes less. And I added all those up. In the last eight years, that means I've spent 5,040 hours studying the word of God, which means I'm halfway to becoming an expert, all right? 10,000 hours, all right? Uh, and, and, and so uh, I've, it, it's just one of the things I love is, is preaching. I mean, it's, 
part of God's calling on my life to, to, to bring his truth to people, illuminate his truth, see people's lives change. And, I've, and over the course of, of my, my ministry, I've seen lots of lives change. We've seen people respond to him. We've seen, we've seen people make great decisions for him. We've, we've had so many testimonies. We share them with you occasionally on video. We, we've seen God move. I even had this, one time this girl walked into our office. She was a George Fox student in counseling and she saw me and she stopped. I'd never, I didn't even recognize her, but she looked at me and she, she goes, she goes, you. I'm like, you know, what? She goes, you. She goes, you saved me. And, and she goes, well, well, not you, but God did. But it was when you were a youth pastor and I was there and I, I don't remember her. And I, I tell you my, my, just the joy I mean, that all those things, when I see life change, is uh, it, it makes the valleys worth it, right? It makes everything, makes everything worth it. It's, it's why we do what we do. But as much as people have been changed and ministered and encouraged and transformed, uh, I want to tell you that the person that's been changed the most by my sermons is me. No one's heard me preach more than me. And one of my values as a pastor is that I don't preach anything that I'm not willing to work on. I don't ever want to be caught into this, well, he preaches it, but he doesn't live it. And so I work hard at every time that I study the word of God. And and this this can be... This can be very tricky in ministry because you can go to the word of God and you go to the word of God for other people and you can almost bypass yourself in ministering to people and you just become a conduit and nothing else. But my value is that I let the word of God penetrate my heart in my soul, in my life. I want it deep down inside of me so when it comes out of here, it's authentic and real. It is my value that the person who's been transformed the most is me. The best comment I ever received about my preaching was a guy came up to me. He'd been hanging out at the back is when we used to meet here several years ago, hanging out in the back and he was there for several weeks and he came up to me, uh, made, made his, his brave way up front at the end of the gathering. Uh, and uh, he goes, he, he said to me, he goes, he goes I, I don't believe everything that you're saying, (laughs) but I can tell you do. And that makes me want to believe. I want my life to be a vessel, to be used by God, but I also want to reflect the light and love of Jesus Christ. I like how Paul puts it. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Do you understand the identity when Jesus takes over your life? You know, the culture is going to say, hey, you just need to be you. Right? You do you and I'll do me. You, you be you. But, but scripturally, it is, I've been crucified with Jesus and my old life and my old identity gets laid down, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself up for me. is the law of regeneration. Let me get to the sixth one. It's called the change proposition. The change proposition. How many of you like change? <laughs> you know, we used to say this. We used to think this. 
that, 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 um, that uh, everybody, no, nobody liked change. Um, it, it, but I was the kind of person that, like, I changed things all the time. And I always loved the things that I changed. <laughs> but this is what I've learned, that, that, that you, you actually like change. But the change that you like is the change that you have control over. Right? The change that you don't have control over is the change that frustrates you. And so in ministry, I, I used to say, oh, I love change. Let's change this. Let's change it. Ask my staff. Every few months, I get antsy. I'm like, let's change the order of something so I don't get bored anymore. Like, let's, let's paint the walls. Let's get a new sign. Let's change the colors. If it was up to me, like, we would be a mess. Like, uh, if it was purely up to me. Thankfully, I have a staff that says, no, no, we just need to keep doing this. But, but then something gets changed on me. Like a pandemic in the way we do church. And then I can't stand change, right? The, the only change we like is the change that we have control over. John Maxwell said this, that change is inevitable, but growth is optional. My, my pastor used to say this, that the only thing constant in life is change. <laughs> it, you, you cannot have control over the changes in your life, but you can have the perspective that growth can happen through change. In the last eight years, we've changed a lot. We've changed our mission. We've changed our vision. We've uh, changed our staff. We've changed our locations a couple times. All right? We've, we, we've changed a lot. And, and we will change our location in the future. All right? We're, our goal is to get back to the high school auditorium so more people can come back. Uh, but, but during change, th this is what happens, that Fear sees an obstacle, but faith sees an opportunity. And in your life, the change that you experience can be your biggest catalyst for growth. The change is kind of like those valleys of life, that it is in those valleys and in those moments that you have the opportunity to change the most. Maybe there are changes happening in your life, in your family, in your career, and your education, and you're looking at it and you have no control over it. But I wanna encourage you to, to embrace that change and, and see what God wants to do in you and through you during that change. Because I promise you, he's got something for you in that change. And you will grow through that change. Now, a lot of things in life change, but there is one person who never changes. His name's Jesus. Hebrews 13.8 says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today, and forever. Somebody say amen. The one thing that is constant in your life is Jesus. And so if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, your whole world can be changed, but your life can be rock solid because you are close to the Savior. Let me get to the seventh one. The seventh one is the mission mandate. That's what I'm calling it, the mission mandate. Uh, you, you know that, that uh, we all value metrics and we all uh, value measuring things. In fact, what you measure is important in your life. Let me give some examples of what we measure in our life. How, you don't have to raise your hand for this one, but how do you know how much you weigh? All right, you, you know how much you weigh because your weight is important. You measure what matters, all right? 
it, it, we have this, uh, this board on our wall that's like this giant six-foot ruler, and we measure our kids' height. Do you, do you do that too? And we have it on a board, so wherever we move, we can take it with us. And, and so we, we measure what matters, and we get to tell our kids, hey, when you were a little squirt, this is how big you were. And, you know, eventually, like my boys are getting taller than my wife, and uh, I tell them they're not going to get taller than me, but they probably will. Uh, uh, but we measure what matters. We, we measure what's in our bank account. We, we check on it. M- metrics are important to us. And in, in church world, we, we, we have measurements as well. We, we, we measure how many people come and how many people watch online and, 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 and how much we, uh, we give, uh, how much we give away, how many people respond to Jesus, how many people are baptized. And these are all really, real, really good things to measure. But I think there's a measurement and metric in, in ministry and in life that, that, that we don't measure, but we should. And it's not how many people come to church, but it's how many people are sent out from church. You know, the last thing that Jesus said in all four Gospels, he gave a mission mandate. He said, go into all the world. The greatest measure of a church isn't how many people are sent or come, but how many people are sent. Jesus says this, one of the great commissions, there's a great commission, commission in every gospel, John 20, 21, Jesus said this, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. You know, it, it was only in the last probably year and a half that I recognized that we have a grace on our church, uh, an anointing, a calling on our church to be a sending church. I never really thought of us that way, but, but, but it's been happening uh, naturally and organically. And, uh, and I think of it in this way. Uh, just think of uh, George Fox students, for instance, that we have people come, hundreds of students come for, for three or four years, and, and we have an opportunity to invest and pour in and, and, and love and give the gospel. And I've prayed with so many. I've, I've done premarital counseling for a ton of students and done, done their weddings and then they go off and they, and, and they leave and, and it's always a, a hard moment when, when people leave but, it, but I see it as an extension of us in the world. And, and then I think and, I, and I'm sorry that I don't talk about this a, a, enough and I realize that I don't but, but the, the, the value of missions that we have at our church, we have a huge value of missions and, and we've, sent, we've sent people out, right? We, we, ben and Izzy Scott, well, they, they, they are a minister in YWAM. We have Lane in a car we sent out and they're in the Dominican Republic. Years ago we sent out uh, a, a gal named Beth and she went to Ireland and, and she did what I think all missionaries, uh, ultimately the best missionary could do. She has become so much a part of Ireland that she is, is Irish. She's married and she had a baby and it's amazing. Like she has fully embedded herself into mission and ministry more than anyone I've ever seen. Think of Craig, Craig and Heather Duncan that we've sent out to this small island in Vanuatu. Just think of the, the, the mission trips that we've sent to Alaska in, in restoring culture in Alaska. Just think of the mission trips we've sent to Africa and the money that we've poured out. Just think of the money that we've sent to Turkey. We value being sent. We value being sent. In fact, the, the end goal of a Christian of life on this earth is to be a sent one. It, it, it's to be sent. And it doesn't always mean you have to leave. Please don't leave. Not, <laughs> not in the next three months anyway. All right. <laughs> 
your, your journey is, is to figure out where God is calling you and where he has sent you. I even think of Blake, what we sent off, and he's pastoring in Washington now and doing an incredible job. They had their fourth baby, by the way. We are a church that sends people. It's hard to measure that one, but it is a value and an anointing on our church. Let me give you the last one. The last one is the stakeholder principle. The stakeholder principle. There's one thing uh, that, that we all know very well, and it's American consumerism. And, and to be honest, we love it. Don't we? I like being able to go on Amazon to order whatever I want and it be here in one to two days. I like being able to go on Netflix and watch any show I want on demand. Are you with me? We, we love consumerism. We are a consumeristic culture, but a, a consumeristic culture is, is this. It's everything is about me. You know that even your phone listens to you and tracks your every movement and gives you more of what your phone and the AI and the algorithms think that you want? It's why we have so much confirmation bias, that's what it's called, where, where more and more people are getting split and it seems more polarized than ever before because people are getting more entrenched in what they already think. And, and we've, we've consumed it. We, we've consumed it. And, and I, I'm part of it myself in the American culture. You, you can't live here without being part of it. But there is a... Uh, there is a difference when consumerism creeps into the church. And, and, and the, the church and the gospel is, 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 is anti-consumerism. <laughs> uh, like you couldn't get more opposite in the church world than, than consumerism. In fact, the opposite of a consumer is a stakeholder. It, 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 is, it is someone who is invested in the success and participates in the organization, but they are part of it as well. And, and I think about Christianity and I, and I think about, uh, you know, how people come and how people consume church. And, and, and we've even got caught in this. And I remind my staff and I tell them, because we, we, we got caught up saying this word content. We want, to, we want good content. And I said, we can't say content anymore because content is, is something that we consume. We got to say gospel and mission because we don't consume it, it consumes us. Are you with me? And so we, we've got to think differently when we come into church. That it isn't all about me, it isn't all about us. Because if it is, when I don't like what I get, then I do what I am conditioned to do. I leave, I switch, I change the channel, I find something new. And I have found over the last eight years, here's my last thing that I've learned. This one has been no clearer to me than in a pandemic when stress and pressure has been so significant in people's lives that we have responded out of it is this, is that the happiest people in the church are those who give and serve the church. There is a direct correlation to how much you love your church between how much you give and serve your church. The people who've been most vocal and most critical are those 
who give and serve the least. And the people who are most supportive are those who serve and give the most. And so I want to talk to some of you. Maybe some of you are here and you're, you're just thinking, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm not content. I want to say, jump in and be a part. The, the antidote to consumerism is to give. It is a stakeholder. There is a difference between someone who owns a business and someone who works in the business. As an owner or a stakeholder, you have a different perspective. You have ownership. You are more committed and you have more love. Jesus said this. This is a huge part of the gospel. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The call of the gospel is to serve. It is to give. Your time and your talents and your resources. This is why anyone who goes on a mission trip, they come back and they gave, but they come back and they always say this, well, I received way more than I ever gave. It's how the kingdom of God works. The last thing I wanna leave you with is this, is that uh, several years ago, I did a, um, I did a sermon series called I, I Heart My Church. How many of you remember that? I gave away about 8 million t-shirts. We found them at the thrift store. We bought them, means we redeemed them back for God's purpose. And I Love My Church was all about us coming together as a people to be committed to the local church and God's church. And I, and I want to remind you this Sunday. It's worn and tattered because it's a work shirt now. But I love my church. I love my church. I am committed. I'm a stakeholder. And I want you to love your church. And so I want to ask of you in this next season of your life. Where can you give? Where can you serve? Where can you be a part of? Because this isn't my church. This is our church. You all have a piece of it. You're all part of it. And it is not complete without you being fully involved and functioning in it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your people, for our church, Red Hills Church. I thank you for this town and this region, this county that we reach, Lord. I thank you for your people and your saints who've given and sacrificed so much. But Lord, I feel in my heart and I feel in my spirit that, that our future is going to be so much greater than our past that you've got more planned for each one of us as we come into our calling and come into our destiny. We love you, Lord. We praise your name. And everyone said, amen, amen.